Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals sets oral argument in the expedited appeal filed by the Department of Justice in the case involving Donald Trump stealing thousands of government records and then running to Judge Eileen Cannon, who improperly asserted equitable jurisdiction. And then the Department of Justice got the 100 classified records returned. But now it's the appeal regarding all the other records. Well, the Court of Appeal says, put up or shut up. Let's hear this case on November 22nd. I think that's good news. And it shows that Judge Eileen Cannon is going to be overruled. But meanwhile, Popak, the special master, proceeding is continuing in earnest before Raymond Deary, where the Department of Justice and Trump just recently responded to five questions posed by Raymond Deary. And Trump's responses are some of the most absurd things. And it would be funny if this person wasn't so dangerous and didn't steal our top secret records. Also, MAGA extremist and the chair of the Arizona Republican Party loses her emergency application to the Supreme Court, and uh, she must turn over her T-Mobile phone records to the January 6th committee. You know who I'm talking about, right, uh, Popa Kelly Ward? Meanwhile, more witnesses. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Are you going to do a Kelly Ward impression? Extremists who don't want to turn over their records, so I kept. You got to prom- You got to promise me. You got to do a Kelly Ward impression again today. Ultra mega, ultra mega. (laughs) More witnesses are called to the stand in the Trump Organization criminal trial, where the Trump Organization is a criminal defendant in a Manhattan trial. And the former Trump Organization chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg took the stand earlier in the week and he laid out Trump and the Trump organization. He did what he said he was going to do when he took the plea agreement where he pled guilty to 15 felony counts uh, in exchange for not having to serve 15 years in prison and only serve 100 days incarcerated. Also, the Department of Justice has informed the federal judge overseeing a case where the search warrant our search warrant had been executed on Rudy Giuliani's premises that the Department of Justice is not going to be prosecuting Rudy Giuliani for his foreign lobbying activity. It doesn't mean Giuliani's off the hook for all of the other criminal conduct he engaged in, but you and I will discuss what this means and how you and I feel about it and how it makes us feel about the Department of Justice. And finally, Trump files a completely 
deranged appeal with the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In that lawsuit, he filed against Twitter. Remember, he first filed it in Florida, which he shouldn't have, and then it got moved to San Francisco, and it was dismissed by the federal judge there. But in this new appeal, Trump compares himself to Galileo. Like, you can't make this stuff up. This is the midweek edition of Legal AF. Karen Friedman Agnifilo, who is formerly 30 years at the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, so has great insight into the uh, DAs there and prosecutors there. Well, she's out on a trial. So you get Michael Popak and Ben Micellis. Michael Popak, how are you? Don't adjust your knobs. We just have Ben, (laughs) the weekend anchor and co-founder of Legal AF, sitting in for Karen, who is trying a case, because as we've always said, that's what we bring to the table. We actually are lawyers who try cases and have clients and and that's our perspective. We miss Karen today. She'll bring her insight into all things Manhattan DA and prosecutorial world when she returns, hopefully next week, um, right in time for Thanksgiving. Ben, how are you? I'm doing great and I'm doing better knowing that the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals has finally set oral argument quickly, right? In the expedited appeal that was filed by the Department of Justice regarding Judge Eileen Cannon, the Trump appointee in the Southern District of Florida, who on September 5th found that she had equitable jurisdiction, which is like the rarest thing for a judge to possibly find that they could exercise jurisdiction. Equitable jurisdiction basically means there's no law that says the judge should ever get involved, but because the conduct is just so outrageous, by the government or an entity that a judge says, you know what, for the purpose of saving equity here, for equity's sake, I got to jump in. And we've always talked about that, the factors that you have to assess as a judge, like the main one being, did the government engage in a callous disregard for the rights of the person they're investigating? Like, Even Judge Eileen Cannon didn't make that finding, but she said, oh, because the reputation of Donald Trump is going to be hurt, let's start this whole special master process. Well, the Department of Justice has already got back the 100 classified records because the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals found that Eileen Cannon shouldn't have asserted equitable jurisdiction regarding those records. It's basically the same argument that the Department of Justice makes why the 11,000 or so other records before the special master uh, should not be subject to this uh, process before a special master that Canon should never have asserted equitable jurisdiction. I've been saying this for a very long time that um, my view is by late November, early December, the Court of Appeals is going to say Canon should never have asserted equitable jurisdiction and this whole special master process will be stopped. But Popak, there's still a lot of action going on in the special master process, despite the fact that oral argument on the appeal is going to take place on November 22nd, which may make make the special master's role completely moot. And the special master set a hearing for December 1. So what's going on with the special master? Yeah, I mean, the Department of Justice made a, thanks, Ben, the Department of Justice made a calculated decision not to go through the trouble of asking this new three-judge panel, and we don't know who they are yet, new three-judge panel at the 11th Circuit to issue a stay to stop Judge uh, Deary, the special master, from reviewing the documents because they want to double track this. Because if they weren't certain when they filed and asked for expedited appeal and an expedited oral argument that they'd actually get it, and they didn't want to have anything really delaying, so they let it they let it be a parallel tracked. Deary 
you you continue with what you're doing now that we got the 100 classified documents back, but let's keep that on a very fast track, which, of course, Judge Cannon, who's in the back pocket of Donald Trump, slowed down considerably and allowed um, and gave Trump another gift of saying that his work needed to be done by middle of December. And, and, the, and then the Department of Justice said, look, we got a great win in our first appeal to the 11th Circuit. And there, and let's do it all again with the special, uh, the special fast track appeal with a new panel. And I totally agree with you. I'd be, I really would be shocked if even a new three judge panel of the Eleventh Circuit found that Eileen Cannon properly exercised equitable jurisdiction, or even had it in this case, and should have set up a special master process in order to uh, funnel all of these and filter all of these documents that were obtained in the search warrant. Uh, through. I think it comes da crashing down. The curtain comes crashing down on Cannon's special master scheme, maybe by just after Thanksgiving, beginning of December, probably a couple of weeks before um, Ray Deary, God bless his soul, is done with his work. Now, look, he's got a job to do in the meantime. He's got a team of people and some former ex-judges that are helping him, and he's trying to pick through all of the legal issues. So, you know, people might be saying, why are they even bothering doing all that? Because there's no stay. And unless there's a stay of a court, you got to comply unless and until a higher authority tells you to stop. And so the, the last issue everybody may recall from about three or four podcasts ago that you and I did, Ben, the last issue was somehow Trump and the Department of Justice actually agreed on something. And they agreed that there were five open questions, just five open questions that needed to be answered and briefed in order for Deary to do his job. And so Deary set a briefing schedule. Submit your briefs about these five open issues. And when you read them, I'll let you take Trump. I'll do, let me do Department of Justice. The five open issues, which are addressed in both briefs, basically come down to, can Donald Trump convert presidential documents into personal documents, either before leaving office or as an ex-president? Yes or no? Um, and you know the answer the Department of Justice gave on that one. Two, whether personal documents can ever be covered by executive privilege, because doesn't the assertion of exec executive privilege mean fundamentally that the documents are not personal? And then, and then the last one, I mean, there's five of them, but they're, I'm grouping them together. The last one is, does Donald Trump have to file a declaration if he's got any issues or bones to pick about the inventory that the Department of Justice used in collecting the documents? Yes or no? You may recall that Judge Deary wanted an early declaration affidavit from, from, from Trump with a short deadline. And Cannon jumped in and said, no, no, that's not outside of your scope as being, I didn't ask you to do that, a special master. Don't require Donald Trump to issue an affidavit under oath. We wouldn't want that. So, you know, skip that part. But now they've, you know, it's an issue that's being um, briefed in front of, um, in front of the, uh, a special master. And, you know, the, the, if you read this really elegantly, actually, I circulated it at my law firm, because it's really an example of amazing uh, writing, efficient, elegant writing by the Department of Justice in 20 pages, which is really small for a brief. They nailed every point and they took on the major attack that Donald, the major case that Donald Trump tries to rely on, which you and I anticipated months ago and talked about, which is the, the judicial watch case involving Bill Clinton recording on a recorder his thoughts and dreams and hopes 
that he was going to use for a future book when he left office and literally kept in a sock drawer, whether that was a presidential record or was always meant to be personal and private to him. That's what the case is about. That and some other kind of uh, very, very esoteric issues about the uh, National Archive and who makes the initial determination on designation of presidential records. But but the uh, Trump group jumps up and down and says, judicial watch case, that's a great case for us. And I think the Department of Justice did a great job dismantling that in 20 pages or less. And to tell the, uh, the Ray Deary um, that he should go forward, finish his work, and this is how we should resolve the the related the um, the um, leftover executive privilege issues. The other thing, Ben, that you and I talked about off off uh, line in getting prepared for today is how little amount how little a population of documents we're actually still talking about. And the Department of Justice spent some of their time in their brief reminding uh, the special master that out of three thousand documents, not pages, but documents. There's only one document of that that Donald Trump is trying to apply uh, attorney-client privilege to, and there's only 121 documents that he's trying to apply this executive privilege to. So, so give me, give me the 2,900 plus other documents and send them over like the hundred classified, and let us do our job as an investigative and prosecutorial agency with a live criminal investigation. What did you think about Trump's filing, Ben? Trump's filing was the most absurd and insane thing ever. But I say that about every one of his filings. What Trump argued in his filing is that the way he designated government records as personal was by packing them and sending them to Mar-a-Lago, that that's how you do it. He doesn't have to write it down and that he can convert any government record that he wants to convert into a personal record and nobody can question him merely by the fact that he packed them and shipped them. That's, that's what does it in his books. And that's what he claims the judicial watch case, the Bill Clinton Sox case says. When that case says nothing like that at all. I'll talk about that case in one second. But literally, this is what his brief says. You can't make this up. It says, rather, Trump was authorized to and did, in fact, designate the seized materials as personal records while he served as president. Now it goes on to explain, well, how do you do it? Did you tell the National Archives? Did you make notice of it? How did you do it? It goes this. President Trump was still serving his term in office when the documents at issue were packed, transported, and delivered to his residence in Palm Beach, Florida. Thus, when he made a designation decision, he was president of the United States. Like you can't get more of a non sequitur than that because he packed it and sent it. That's how it all of a sudden becomes a, a personal record. And this judicial watch case that Donald Trump cites, and this is what the Department of Justice laid out in their brief, this group by Tom Finton, who's not a lawyer, who like basically acts like he's a lawyer, he filed a case against the National Archives uh, alleging these issues about the Clinton presidency. Did he file it during the Clinton presidency? No. The lawsuit was from 2012 about the Clinton presidency. And the issue in, was, as you mentioned, Popak, audio recordings of Clinton's personal autobiography, not government records or stealing records. And the archives had already agreed that those records were personal records. And what that stands for also is that it is the archives who could basically make that determination. And nor does that statement, nor does that case stand for the proposition that someone can just 
illegally or unlawfully wave a magic wand or telepathically turn government records into personal records. Like there are. Wait, it also it also presupposes that the National Archive got a complete inventory of everything from the office in, in order to make that determination. How do they do that if all the boxes went out the door directly to Mar-a-Lago and never got to the National Archive? Isn't that the point of the entire yeah. case? And the Sox case stands for the proposition that you can't <laughs> bring a random dude like Finton or Dudette or whoever cannot bring a private lawsuit against the National Archives. That, that, that's what it stands for, to compel someone like Clinton to have designated it differently where the archives agrees with the designation. Like that, it stands for that proposition. That's what the Sox case, the Sox case, the Sox case. And by the way, do you know Judge Amy Berman Jackson was the judge in the Sox case? And she's oh, yeah. the judge who's been sentencing all of the MAGA <laughs> extremists to like- I, I love- <laughs> I love I love that you call it the Sox case because Clinton had a cat named Sox in the White House. That's what he says, you know, because <laughs> the argument was that the audio recordings of Clinton's autobiography were kept yeah. in a drawer where he kept his socks. So that's why <laughs> the mag- but they, they, they latch on to these like names, you know, like strike force, sock case, you know, you know, George Ministry H. of H. Truth. H. <laughs> you know, Chinese ministry. That's where that's where they kept it. They kept it at a Chinese restaurant slash bowling alley. It's like, what are you talking about? But so there'll be a hearing before Deary, the special master on December 1st. He's going to look at these briefings. Popak, he's definitely going to return the documents that are not in dispute yeah. to the Department of Justice. Trump and his lawyers are going to get excoriated at this hearing. Yeah. I think secretly Trump's lawyers hope that the 11th Circuit just ends this before they have to go in front of Deary. And I think the Department of Justice strategically did that surgical move where they got the classified records back and let the rest of it kind of play out with Deary, but making at least a good faith attempt to say we should have it because Trump's done himself no favors in this process by making assertions like the one I just claimed where he basically admits to stealing the records, which could be used in a criminal prosecution. Can't you picture Merrick Garland or whoever the lead prosecutor is in the case? I know they're reporting to him just saying this because this is what prosecutors do. They let people out in order to continue to surveil them and watch them and listen to them. They get more information than if they shut down the person. You know, they're just sitting in their offices going, let them talk. Let him talk, let him tweet, let him rally, let him announce for the presidency, because he has said, between the last time you and I reported on this and now, in no less than six circumstances, has President Trump, ex-President Trump, uh, implicated himself in uh, the crime. Eventually, it gets out of Deary's hands. It gets out of Cannon's hands. We'll never have to hear about her again in this case, and out of the 11th Circuit hands, and goes back to being a prosecution of President, ex-President Trump by the Department of Justice. And all these statements that he's been making around it all implicate him and all implicate him and put him squarely in the crosshairs now that the midterms are over. Absolutely. And the fact that he announced that he's running for uh, whatever he thinks the office is. I think he thinks it's king or emperor and he calls President G king. What's the weirdest announcement in the world? That's not going to immunize him from anything. As you get closer to the election, there are those weird Department of Justice rules that require approval 
before and elections, but that's not going to be at issue with respect to Look, any we potential. never had we never had a president um, lead an insurrection. We never had a president become impeached twice, and and so we're ne- so you, we can't look back at history and say historically the Department of Justice doesn't prosecute presidents, right? Because presidents don't do the things, or ex presidents don't do the things that this guy did. So you know, th- there's no playbook for this. This is going to have to be sober assessment and judgment. Um, by Merrick Garland, ultimately, about whether there is enough evidence to prosecute somebody. We're going to talk later in this podcast about a mature decision made by the Department of Justice not to prosecute somebody. So these are this is why they get paid the big bucks. They make these decisions. They're the only ones that make this decision. If they make the right decision, it's theirs. If they make the wrong decision, it's theirs. There's nothing anybody, you and I, can't do a thing about it. We can't run into court and make Merrick Garland prosecute Donald Trump. That buck stops with Merrick Garland. Let's talk about this uh, Kelly Ward emergency application that she filed with the United States Supreme Court to try to block turning over her T-Mobile records. The January 6th committee subpoenaed her testimony. She pled the fifth. So then they're like, all right, we need your phone records then. And we're just talking about the metadata, not the actual messages themselves, like uh, who was who made the call, who received the call, the length of the call. And it was narrowly tailored. She made the argument in Arizona District Court that under the First Amendment, it violates freedom of association for the government to pry into her political communications as the chair of the Arizona Republican Party. Um, whether you analyze that under a strict scrutiny or heightened scrutiny type of standard, or even an intermediary scrutiny for kind of First Amendment analysis, um, all of the courts, the District Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals in a 2-1 decision found that there was a compelling government interest and that the subpoena was narrowly tailored. And the compelling government interest is there was an insurrection. Uh, the Supreme Court received an emergency application through Judge Alina uh, Kagan, um, Elena Kagan, over uh, who was an Obama appointee, Judge Kagan. And so Judge Kagan, though granted the temporary stay and blocked the January 6th committee from a, for a very short period of time of getting the records pending review of the Supreme Court. And Popak, you and I on the weekend show, we just said, look, Judge Kagan's an Obama appointee. This is just the process the Supreme Court has gone through and utilized on these insurrection and Trump cases. They've so far almost all, whether you're an Obama appointee, a Trump appointee, a Reagan appointee, whoever whoever the appointee was, a Bush appointee, um, they will, the Supreme Court justices will grant a temporary stay referred to the court. What the and court Kagan, do And Kagan hates the shadow docket. She's been public about it, so it should have been no. It should have been no surprise that she wasn't going to participate in a shadow docket. She wanted full briefing. She wanted it referred over to the entire uh, nine members, and so we got some intel as to who would have who would have agreed to stay the the action and grant the appeal. We'll talk about that because it was a seven, basically a seven to two decision. And we're going to have to talk, unfortunately, about why is Clarence Thomas sitting on anything related to Jan 6, insurrectionists, and Arizona in particular, since it's already become to light through the Jan 6 committee and otherwise, that Ginny Thomas, his wife, was part of the fake elector scheme, was pushing the fake elector scheme in Arizona. 
Kelly Ward was one of the fake electors or would have been one of the fake electors. And so why is Clarence Thomas sitting in specifically on Arizona Jan 6th insurrectionist stuff? He shouldn't be, but he is. And we know he is because he dissented along with Alito in the 7-2 decision by the Supreme Court to force Kelly Ward to turn over or, or allow the T-Mobile to turn over her Basically, her phone bills. You said metadata, and you you accurately described what it would be on it. It's like the old phone bill. Who'd you call, duration, and the like. It's not text messages or or anything else. But but Jan Six has you know thousands and thousands of interviews and hundreds of thousands of pieces of paper that they will fit this into like a jigsaw puzzle to show her involvement. As you said, she claimed the First Amendment was being violated, the freedom of association was being violated. Um, and this also, this decision, I think, um, w will also kill any suggestion by Trump in his recent filing that the uh, to stop the Jan 6 committee subpoena of him, that the Jan 6 committee doesn't have, um, isn't properly constituted, isn't properly authorized, isn't bipartisan, and therefore wasn't um, empowered to issue the subpoena. I mean, the, the Supreme Court time and time again has looked at the powers of the Jan 6 committee uh, and allowed them to get records, to get testimony uh, almost every time, almost every time. So, you know, look, all I got to say about Arizona, um, besides, besides the ruling that you outlined, is three words, Governor Katie Hobbs. I mean, I mean, this is this is that state. Friend of the pod, friend of Midas Brothers pod. She appeared on your show, right? Didn't Katie Hobbs mm -hmm. appear on your show? Yeah. She's now the governor of the state. She was the secretary of state that held the line against all of the crazies, all of the election deniers. It, nobody was under more pressure in the state of Arizona than her. And she's now the governor. What does that tell you about that state? You know, a state that, that took out the speaker, speaker of the House because he, he uh, properly testified to the Jan 6 committee. So... Uh, this doesn't this this bodes terribly for Kelly Ward, but I think it also signals that Donald Trump's continued arguments and attacking the jurisdiction of the Jan Six Committee against him is a, is a dead loser. He'll pick up two votes: Sam Alito and Clarence Thomas. But the rest of the adults on this issue seem to be unified that Jan Six Committee is doing a proper legislative or investigative function, and people need to cooperate with them. Couldn't agree more with you, Popak, there. And you mentioned Clarence Thomas still ruled, was in the dissent and said that uh, he would have not only just heard oral argument, but he likely would have quashed the subpoena and would not have let the January 6th committee issue a subpoena. And we've talked about it here on the Midas Touch Network, 28 U.S. Code Section 455, disqualification of justices and judge, make it very clear that a judge must disqualify themselves for a number of reasons, including when their spouse could have an interest in the case or when they have an interest in the case through a spouse being involved. Like, it's not a close call. So if he was and a federal, if he was a non-Supreme Court justice, just a run-of-the-mill federal judge or appellate judge below the Supreme Court, he'd have to abide by that by that statute you just read, right, Ben? Yeah, and frankly, as a Supreme, you know, the, the issue is this. Who would you appeal? He still would have to abide by it now, but why there's no accountability is because they're the highest authority you can appeal to. So if a lower court judge didn't follow the disqualification, you would eventually appeal 
to the United States Supreme Court, you know, which could, you know, grant cert and, and hear it. Or you would appeal to, if it happened in a district court, you would appeal to the circuit court. If it happened in the circuit court, you could appeal to an unbanked panel of the circuit court. And if it happened and no one agreed with you there, you go to the Supreme Court. All these cases in disqualification, right, are circuit court cases or Supreme Court cases that address the issue. And there was that Supreme Court case in the past, I think it was 10 years or so, that's one of the foremost kind of authorities on these disqualifications cases involved, I think it was like a judge in West Virginia or, or a state nearby where one of the litigants contributed millions of dollars to the election. And that was the judge who had overseen uh, the appeals and then overruled uh, the, the district court judgment or the the lower court judgment in favor of the person who had donated to them. But that gets appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. But here you don't have that. It's absurd. You know, it's absurd. It's illegal. It's unlawful. And then people go, well, what can we do about it? I mean, hypothetically, could a Supreme Court justice be impeached? Sure. But is that going to happen? It's just not going to happen. You know, should we expand the Supreme Court? You know, yes. Do we need to elect more Democrats to to do that? Yes. And it's not a both sides issue. You know, and I and I did another hit recently on the student debt cancellation cases as well. And I'm like, it's not a both side issue. You got you got Biden who has implemented the program, and you've got the Republicans, the Federalist Society, and their judges, all Republicans, all right-wing, who have done everything they can to deliver benefits for the billionaires and block student debt cancellation program. This isn't a both side issue. There's one side that's engaged in the misconduct here. And so there's no other way of putting it, Popak. That's the law. Clarence Thomas should not have been heard. But, you know, that is that that's that's the system. You know, you got presidents who nominate um, these uh, federal uh, justices and, and the Senate confirms. He had Chief, Chief Justice Roberts has no control over this. But uh, if I was a fly on the wall in his chambers, whenever he sees that um, that uh, Thomas continues to participate in these cases and doesn't voluntarily recuse himself, I'm sure he slaps his forehead. He'd rather not. He would rather not continue to have shame and um, approbation brought down on the U.S. Supreme Court by having Clarence Thomas's not only appearance of impropriety, but impropriety, um, you know, just uh, splashed all over the rest of the Supreme Court in its legitimacy. He'd rather not. The problem is, Ben, as you pointed out, even the chief justice doesn't have the power and the authority. Now, he could do one thing, and we'll, we'll talk about it over the course of the year. You know, the, the chief justice could, imp, you know, implement and impose, I believe, a rule of ethics or, or, or rules of professional responsibility applicable to the nine members of the Supreme Court. He just never does it. He says in his annual, you know, we get to hear from Roberts once a year about the state of the bench. And he always says, We're, we got this. We'll take care of it. We clean our own house. We take care of our own. We take care of our, you know, we'll do, in, we'll, we'll do it self, self-discipline. It's not working. It's not working. And it makes the Supreme Court look to everybody else to be illegitimate. Yeah. What Roberts could also do is he could, on a opinion like that, he could just put and the chief justice respectfully requested that Clarence Thomas recuse <laughs> based on the conflict. And and uh, the request was denied. I mean, what does that do in theory? Nothing. Yeah. But at least you can let your you know your voice be heard here. Speaking about letting their voice be heard, Alan Weisselberg, reluctantly, his voice his voice is being heard. I guess you could say he 
went in there kicking and screaming after agreeing to a uh, plea deal for pleading guilty to 15 felony counts. I mean, the the case in New York involves improper benefits being given to executives at the Trump organizations, which weren't being uh, reported as taxable income. And Alan Weisselberg was among many of the executives who got these benefits, which were not taxed as income as they um, should have been. And Alan Weisselberg previously pled guilty. His sentencing has been held over pending his testimony. So he testified for the first time on Tuesday. And his testimony so far has lived up to what he was supposed to testify to. Trump was aware of the pro of, of what was going on. The controller, that guy Jeff McConney was aware or should have been aware, and they were engaged in illegal conduct. I mean, he just basically said it kind of right away. He said to testify again on Thursday. Popak, what did you think about his testimony? I think that even though he came through with the fundamental admission that he knew that he was committing tax fraud, and he does, and he believes that people at the higher level must have known that too. Is sort of where he's left off with his testimony, at least at the con the controller level, which is another. That's uh, a person who sits next to the chief financial officer. The controller, though, McConney testified that I don't really understand tax law. That's not my job, and I left it to Alan Weisselberg. Alan Weisselberg confessed that he committed tax fraud because he said he even hid the fact that he was getting a free apartment being paid for directly out of Donald Trump's bank account every month. I mean, we, there's checks as evidence signed Donald J. Trump um, to his um, to his landlord um, over the course of the year, which which totaled about a couple hundred thousand dollars a year when you add up like the car and the utilities and the apartment in New York to live near Trump Tower, whatever it was. Um, he said um, he hid that. Weisselberg said I, he hid it from Mazers, the outside auditing firm who also did his personal taxes. So, you know, he's in it up to his elbows. My problem with some of what was revealed on the stand is, is as follows, Ben. I don't know if you caught this. One, he's still on the payroll of the Trump organization. He's getting paid $640,000 a year to stay home. Secondly, he's waiting on, he had to admit this, and 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 good on the, depart, in the uh, Manhattan DA's office for bringing this out to show a potential bias here and a potential witness tampering here by the Trump organization, who's, who, of course, is the main the main uh, defendant here, because Alan Weisselberg testified that he's waiting, I guess, in January on a five hundred thousand dollar yearly bonus that he's gotten year after year. And they and the prosecutors asked him, well, well, when do you get that paid? He goes, that would be probably in the new year. And they said, well, are you expecting to get it? And he said, I hope so. And they said, well, who's responsible? Who makes the decision as to whether you get it or not? And he said, Eric Trump, who runs the organization and has since 2017. So this guy, not only is he still getting paid on the payroll up to $700,000, he's waiting like a pork chop being dangled in front of him, a big fat carrot by the Trump organization. In other words, yeah, I get that you're going to have to testify truthfully, but if you overdo it, right, if you go out of your way, that $500,000 bonus is going out the window. I mean, that's the signal that I'm seeing. And McConaughey's got the same thing. He's sitting home with a half a million dollars a year getting continued to be paid by the Trump organization. The other thing that reporting um, of the trial is, uh, has brought out is that um, Weisselberg is being prepped, not just by the Manhattan DA's office, but he's sitting regularly with the Trump organization lawyers to prepare for his testimony. I mean, this is completely 
uh, unheard of. You've got the key witness for the government because they can't do anything to stop him, I guess, is meeting regularly with the Trump organization so they learn what his testimonies can be and they can help shape it. Have you ever heard of such a thing, Ben? No. And he's getting paid. <laughs> he's waiting on a half a million dollars if he's a if he's a good boy and Donald can, you know, this is the guy that on the day he made his deal, you know, and we were like, yes, justice will be served is the same day Donald Trump and the Trump organization threw him a birthday party in the Trump Tower. You know, he says in his testimony about that, that he regretted that, that it was his son who threw it for him and there wasn't a lot of people and it was just a birthday cake. But, you know, the, oh, the, it was the like whole- it was like the announcement that Trump's <laughs> running for office. Exactly. <laughs> well, the, the Trump running for office was uh, was definitely more of a funeral than a uh, <laughs> oh, than totally. A, than a birthday. Oh. That was one of the weirdest things I've I've ever seen. But no, Popak, there's nothing normal about this trial. But but we shouldn't lose track of what the case, what this case is about. And so far, I don't know if you agree, like all the elements have been hit, right? Yeah. He said he committed a crime. <laughs> he, he said that uh, that the higher ups were aware of it. One of right. the jury instructions is going to be, you should also look at if one of the sides had an opportunity to bring a witness in and that witness was not brought in, you can infer for yourself that there's something that they may be hiding. I think that's an important jury instruction here that the department of that here, the New York uh, Manhattan DA's office is going to point out. And they're going to say, look, they had the opportunity to bring Trump in and he could have rebutted any of these things that you heard. And you heard it from all of these people's mouths directly. Here's the evidence that we have. Here's the checks. Like it's a very technical case when you think about it. It's not, it's not like an emotional case. It's like here are the checks. Here are the people confirming it, and they're not going to put Trump on to rebut it. Like boom. Like that's it. Yeah. Like the the, the, and, the Trump and, and, organization and look, is going to be found guilty. It's it's a smaller case than anybody would have liked. I know that our co-anchor it it drives her batty. Um, and really gets her upset when we talk about it, that her former office brought such a small case of just, you know, basically a $1.6 million fine and a criminal conviction against the Trump organization for these these tax issues. But again, we're back to prosecutorial di- discretion. This is, you know, you, you have to try the case that you have, not the case that you wish you had. And the case that obviously the Manhattan DA's office thinks they had was, and, the, and a case that they could win, with Weisselberg um, flipping, basically flipping, is this case that we're now watching proceed in real time in a courtroom down in lower Manhattan. And uh, you're right, he'll take the stand again tomorrow. We'll report on more of that on the weekend edition. And and some people might say, well, this isn't the case we wanted. But, but again, we have to take these one at a time. There's so many criminal charges and so many things that Trump and his family did wrong. You just have to pick them off one at a time. So if this... If this one sticks, it'll be a conviction for for criminal tax evasion for about 15 counts against the Trump organization and the Trump payroll entity, which is a a, a subsidiary, um, which they'll have to report on all of their future licensing applications, uh, bank loans, um, and anything else for a long, long time. This is going to ha- this this will um, like a bankruptcy doesn't get cleared for a long, long time. Having a criminal charge against your company for tax evasion is a bad thing, not a good thing. If you want to continue to operate your company, 
Yeah, and look, this is different also than the civil lawsuit being brought by the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, where they're seeking at least $250 million in damages for the Trump organization and Donald Trump and his adult children engaging in fraudulent valuations of their property. And there, an independent monitor in connection with a preliminary injunction sought by the New York AG based on continuing fraud being committed by Trump and the Trump organization has now actually officially been appointed. It's retired Judge Barbara Jones. It's ironic. It's the same judge who Trump <laughs> objected to in the special master proceeding and got Raymond Deary. And, and, he and, the, same, he and the same judge we're going to talk about next in the Giuliani 16 uh, electronic devices, right? That reviewed all of his devices. A good segue there. Popak, <laughs> did you realize that you don't have to choose between better hair growth and your health? There is a holistic solution for men that promotes both healthier hair and whole body wellness. That's why I love Nutrafol. It's the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. I'm not sure if you've been noticing it, Popak, but it looks a little thicker right now. Nutrafol's <laughs> hair growth nutricicals go beyond genetics to multi-target the root cause of thinning, including stress hormones, nutrition, metabolism, aging, and lifestyle through whole body health. It's physician-formulated using natural medical-grade ingredients and Nutrafol's drug-free patented technology provides consistent, reliable results without compromising your sexual health. In a clinical study, men showed progressive improvement in hair growth and thickness after three and six months. Nutrafol is also trusted and recommended by more than 3,000 top doctors. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com slash men and entering the promo code, promo code LegalAF to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere. It was negotiated directly by me and Popak, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus free shipping on every order, Popak, plus free shipping. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com slash men. This is how you spell it, everybody. Write it down. N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L dot com slash men, M-E-N, and then use the promo code LegalAF. And after you get it, share it with me. Shoot me a DM, tag us in a tweet, or tell me about it on a YouTube comment. I really love this product, and I'm pretty confident that you will also share my sentiments in loving this product. I'm very confident in fact. Popak, lots of people are upset. They're saying, how could the Department of Justice not be prosecuting Rudy Giuliani for his foreign lobbying activities? They executed the search warrant. A special master was appointed, Barbara Jones. She was appointed. They went through all of these records. And after this whole process, the DOJ just sent a letter to the federal judge saying they're not going to need the services of the special master anymore because they're going to decline to prosecute Giuliani. Um, I've seen a lot of messages 
very angry, very upset at Merrick Garland. And, you know, look, I, I, I'm not a, I don't try to like, I'm, I'm not like a Garland, like I love Garland for the sake of apologist. just saying, you know, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a Garland apologist here. Uh, but when you see prosecutions like the Durham prosecution, which was so politically motivated and Durham went 0 for 2 um, and just embarrassing, career ruining. Um, and you see the methodical steps that the Garland, uh, that Garland DOJ is taking in contrast to Durham. And then you look recently at that foreign lobbying case, the FARA case, the foreign agent registration case with Tom Barrack. Um, where it was really tough, I think, for the jury to understand because the Trump organization, I mean, the Trump administration, which ran as the organization as a cartel, was kind of so corrupt that what was foreign lobbying and what was, you know, just activity that would normally occur by businesses that can have foreign relations, you know, with companies was a tough one for the jury to understand there. What do you think about this, Popak? I know people are really upset. Yeah, well, let me let me start with the following. I don't think Merrick Garland is the one that pulled the plug on the prosecution. There's certain things that Maine Justice and the and the Department of Justice at that level um, get involved with. And there's certain ones that are just the individual U.S. attorney's offices. Damian Williams, who's the new U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, taking over in a long line of Southern District of New York prosecutors all the way back to Rudy Giuliani, who ran that office back in the 80s and 90s. Damian Williams made the ultimate call. I don't think he got pressured by Merrick Garland at all. Um, Rudy Giuliani, despite his um, his imagination, is not that level of person. He's not an elected official. He's not a person running for office. He's a, you know, over 70, now forcibly retired attorney um, who runs around, you know, trying cases in his mind or on television. And so I don't think Merrick Garland got involved at all. I think Damian Williams looked at all of the evidence over the last um, more than a year. I mean, we talked about the raid. Well, it's uh, March. Yeah, we talked about the raid April of 2020. Um, and which the 16 mobile devices from uh, Rudy Giuliani were picked up, laptops, iPads, um, telephones, and everything. They cracked all of those, either voluntarily or they were able to crack the codes. They got all of his, you know, unvarnished text messaging and emails for the relevant time period. You assume they talked to witnesses that probably cooperated. For instance, as we know from prior podcast, his two business associates, Giuliani's two business associates, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, already have been prosecuted and convicted and sentenced related to, it's unrelated to Giuliani and the Ukraine thing, but related. They're both Ukrainian American businessmen, and they went to jail because they um, tried to evade the restrictions on foreign people making donations to U.S. politics and they're serving time. You got to think that they were cooperating witnesses against Giuliani if they had anything. Just everybody recall the focus of the prosecution was whether Giuliani was secretly as an unregistered lobbyist 
doing the bidding of Ukraine before Zelensky, before Zelensky was in power, who we all love now, the other guy was trying to curry favor with the Trump organization and wanted something also in return. They wanted to get rid of an ambassador that had been appointed previous to that by Obama, who was uh, Ambassador Marie Yavanovich. Uh, uh, and and she they hated her because they couldn't corrupt her, they couldn't bribe her. She they didn't like her policies as they related to the to Ukraine, and they wanted her gone. So the question is: Was Giuliani lobbying uh, uh, Trump on behalf of Ukraine to get rid of uh, Ambassador Yavanovich, who eventually got fired? That was the issue. Was there a quid pro quo there? Different from the other quid pro quo involving Trump and Ukraine when Zelensky became got into power, where he dangled the the allocated four hundred million dollars from Congress and said, I'll give you the four hundred million dollars if you start a special prosecution of Hunter Biden and Burisma. We're going to talk about Hunter Biden, unfortunately, again at the end of the podcast related to the Twitter appeal that Trump has brought um, and all of the fevered conspiracy theories about about Hunter Biden as they relate to Joe Biden. So the, the judge that this same judge is o- oversaw all of this. Uh, it's Judge Paul Oatkin here in the Southern District of New York. He was the sentencing judge for Lev Pardis and Igor Fruman. He's the judge that allowed the search warrants to be issued against Rudy Giuliani in that dawn raid when they pulled him out in his bathrobe and took all of his items. But now they've had the stuff for like 15, 16 months, and they've had as many witnesses as they're going to find. And somewhere along the way, an adult has to make a decision as to whether somebody's liberty is going to be taken away from them but uh, in, in a prosecution that makes sense. And Damien Williams made the decision. You know, he I'm sure he had a presentation made to him by the line prosecutors and investigators at the FBI and otherwise that are putting the case together and said, OK, let's go. We, we call it mooting, M-O-O-T-I-N-G. It's when a lawyer acts like a judge and puts somebody through their paces. Okay, give me your, put on your case. Proffer your case to me. I want to hear it. Who's your witnesses? What are your documents? How do you satisfy the elements? Because the prosecutor has an overwhelming, has a burden beyond a reasonable doubt to convict. And if they don't feel they have that in good faith, they can't indict or prosecute somebody because- that's not the society that we want to live in when the prosecutors just say, well, it's sort of a half-assed case and it's the cake is not completely baked, but fuck it. Let pardon me. Let's just let's just prosecute him anyway because we don't like him. We, that that was the old regime. This is the Merrick Garland Joe Biden regime. We don't do that. So, you know, we're here dutifully reporting as we said, we call balls and strikes that this is the update about Rudy Giuliani. Damian Lewis wrote a letter to Judge Oaken one paragraph letter, and it says, you issued the search warrants, and we're here to report to you that we're not going forward with the prosecution of the case. It's a little bit unusual. I don't think it was negotiated between, sometimes it is, but I don't think this letter was negotiated between Giuliani's defense team and the prosecutors. Because sometimes, you know, if there's not going to be a prosecution, what we call a non-pros or a no-prosecution or a deferred prosecution, these are all concepts in federal federal criminal law and defense. Sometimes you're able to negotiate, listen, you kind of put my guy through the ringer and his his reputation is in shambles. Can you issue a letter that says you're closing the file and you're not going to bring charges? I don't think this was a result of that negotiation. I think it's just Damian Williams 
wanting to go on the record with a judge that he's going to have to appear in front of time and time again to update the judge about once and for all about what what happened with that Giuliani prosecution and reporting to him as an officer of the court that they're not going forward with it. I don't think it was a bargain that was reached with the um, Giuliani defense team. What do you think about that? You know, the Giuliani prosecution, I, I don't think it was bargained with this team because if it was, Giuliani would have announced it on one of the social media platforms or went <laughs> on New, Newsmax or one of those right wing networks and would have, you know, what got ahead of it. The Giuliani prosecution, though, for the lobbying activities was not on my Trump prosecution bingo card as something that I was like, all right, B, B-22, B-22. It was not really one that I was looking at as being right. something that I, I was emotionally and mentally invested in, whether the outcome was one way or the other. I mean, there's, to me, bigger picture stuff of Giuliani criminal conduct, and this doesn't um, immunize him for any of the other investigations that are taking place in state court, whether it's the Georgia Fulton County grand jury investigation, whether it's the Department of Justice's investigation into election interference with the 2020 election, the criminal investigation going on there. Like, I'll tell you, if the Department of Justice ultimately, with the Trump stolen records, decides not to indict him there, I will be very disappointed in that result. But everything in my legal training and knowing the way the Department of Justice operates knows that they've at least taken every right step in terms of how you would build all of the elements to to bring a case. And the grand jury very recently even had to give uh, derivative use immunity, which is like a, a pretty extreme thing to have to give if you're not going to prosecute someone, you know, to give that to Cash Patel to further get to the bottom of Trump's theft of these records. So ultimately, they don't decide to prosecute there after going through all of these steps without any good reason. I would find it a bit perplexing there. Similarly, on the Jan 6th investigation and cases there, what I'm looking to see soon are indictments of the next tier that I've always been talking about, which is the tier above, which is hard to even imagine that there could be one, but whether it's above or maybe parallel to a lateral with the terrorist organizations who are now being tried for seditious conspiracy, you know, there the characters like John Eastman, um, the characters like Jeff Clark, right? The characters like Giuliani, Michael the individual. The Michael Flynn's, the people who were really involved as that next yeah. layer yeah, before Stone. making a charging Roger Stone before making. Yeah. So that's what I'm looking for there next. But, you know, as we've talked about here, the Department of Justice has filed motions in the special grand jury before Judge Beryl Howell to get things the January 6th committee hasn't received. Right. For example, the Gen the Department of Justice has prevailed in overriding Trump's claim of executive privilege regarding Pence's top advisors, the guy Greg Jacobs and Pence's former chief of staff. Um, and the Department of Justice, Greg Jacobs was the general counsel, but also Pence's former chief of staff. And then the Department of Justice has now filed those same motions at uh, White House lawyers, Cipollone. 
um, Cipollone's deputy, you know, and, and, and people, Patrick Feldman and people like that. And so what I say to people who go, what the hell is the justice department doing? I go, do you really, would you really have wanted them to prosecute Trump without the testimony of those key people? And the January 6th committee hasn't got it yet. Fulton County hasn't gotten it yet. The justice department's got it. So what I'm just trying to understand well, in your well, mind, yeah. you know, and I want to yeah. say it respectfully, like, how do you think the trial would go down? Okay. So because <laughs> we all just know that Trump committed a crime, let's just play it out. We indict him. January 12th, we indict him because we go, obviously we can't do January 12th. The administration's still in. But you figure <laughs> July 12th, you know, six months after or so, you go, okay, we're indicting him. Before you get the witnesses, before you ask, before you get it all lined up. Tell me about that trial. Okay, so I subpoena Cipollone. I subpoena all of these people while I'm prosecuting Trump. And what do they do? They invoke Take the privilege. Mm -hmm. And then I can't get their testimony. So now, as a prosecutor, I'm stuck in front of a jury with no evidence. I look like an idiot. The jury's looking at me like, what the hell are they doing? And then Trump's found not guilty. And then he runs on that. I mean, like, like that's the... Here yeah, that's how Here, you want to run the case. Here's what I tell: I tell you the same thing in, in a, a slightly different way. I'll make one guarantee here on the show: the preparation, and the diligence, and the research, and the witness um, leads followed, and the privileges uh, litigated and ripped away to get to the truth. It will be unassailable. Nobody will be able, it will be airtight and waterproof what Merrick Garland's team of prosecutors and investigators is doing. You and I may disagree at the end with a decision whether to prosecute or not to prosecute, but it won't be, cause, it won't be, be, be because Merrick Garland is not fully and completely prepared, having talked to every witness that mattered, seen every document that mattered, and litigated over every privilege that mattered to get to the truth. You're going against, we say it because we've become sort of immune because there's this, you know, since, since the beginning, we're talking about prosecuting the first president in the history of the republic. That is a decision that is, of course, not to be taken lightly, has to be done appropriately. And after every I is dotted and T is crossed, literally everything has to be done. Because at the end, they may, having done all of that, this is a theme today, prosecutorial discretion, they may elect, no, no, I don't like it. I can't win this case. I don't. I have holes in the case. I have holes in the prosecution. I don't have the linkages that link to a criminal case beyond a reasonable doubt, so I, in good conscience, can't bring this case. They may do that. I don't think they will. But they can't half-ass the preparation, rush to judgment, rush into the courtroom in a prosecution, and hope to win. You're just going to play into the hands of even Donald Trump and his and his group of lawyers, and we're going to talk about another one today that joined this group, um, typical, typical group of lawyers that have joined the group for, in, in favor of Donald Trump, you're, you're going to give them a gift, a gift of a Swiss cheese prosecution with lots of holes in it that can easily be 
um, not only refuted, but used to, to, to create just the amount of reasonable doubt in one juror's mind that's required for him to be acquitted. And then you and I, in wringing our hands with all these people that you're referring to in, in Twitter and social media, are going to say, why didn't he, why didn't he do that, Philbin? Why didn't he do that, Cipollone? Why didn't he give immunity? Why didn't he go into the courts of Beryl Howell and get all... Will there be all this backbiting and hand wringing and Monday morning Monday morning quarterbacking about what Merrick Garland didn't do right in preparing his case? We're not going to say that. We may not agree with the decision ultimately, but we're not going to say it's because that team is not prepared. Yeah, look, I want it to move yeah. faster. I really do, but I, you. Unfortunately, by the time you file a motion, you impanel a federal grand jury, you file the motion, the other side gets an opposition, the judge has to make an, a, a ruling, then you, and everything you do, Trump files an objection to. And unfortunately, when someone's elected as the president, there, even though there's no one who's above the law, there are certain people who are armed with a lot more excuses than everybody else. And if you got a whiny baby loser, you know, criminal as a former president, there's no other way to say it, like because he still is a was a former president, you can make these claims and abuse the Constitution the way no one else can. And I see it sometimes like, well, if Trump was anybody else, he would have been prosecuted. Yeah, of course. But he, he's not. He's not. I, I hate to break it to you. He's not. He's not. He was. He. There was a time period where, because millions of Americans sat out and thought that Clinton was just going to win, or that both political parties are the same, that this deranged individual was elected as a president. We had to endure the pain and suffering of four years as our nation was lambasted and destroyed and skewered by this individual. And now afterward, he's still like an abuser torturing the country. And he was a former president. And he can make arguments, even though they're not, they don't have merit, he can argue as a former president, I'm entitled to this privilege and that privilege that any other citizen or person is not able to make the arguments. And because they're all questions of first impression, when an ex-president abuses these systems, that, 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 that's what you have right now. And I would like it now, to go now, now, having Now, having said that, I want to get your view on the timetable here. We are two years, give or take, to the end of the first term of Joe Biden, okay? I think that in order to ensure that if they decide to prosecute Donald Trump for something, for everything, for all things, at the, at the federal level, at the Merrick Garland level, he's got to get that started within the next four to six months to leave another 18 months to get the case tried in case there isn't a second term for a Democrat. What do you think? I agree. I, yeah. I, I, I think otherwise that, he's, he's out of time. I think that where we will have to evaluate is where we are in May ish of t around that time period in 2023 mm -hmm. is going to be a good marker. And I've always felt that the stronger case, because it is very technical and the elements are very matter of fact, is the theft of the government records. 
um, especially if there's any evidence that Trump was using it for improper purposes, even though the theft itself is an improper purpose and, and use of it. I've always felt that was the strongest, even though I believe the election interference is there. I think that the thing that the DOJ will grapple with there and what will make it difficult, though, still is that you have someone, Trump always goes up into the line and then, you know, his words themselves inspire it. And then he's just going to say, well, I didn't say that. And then you get into, but. There's more to it, of course, because he was involved in the fake elector scheme. There's yeah. more to it because he was involved in filing and, fake declarations. And Fawny Willis doesn't have the same timetable. I'm less concerned about Fawny Willis, although, although she said she's going to deliver her. Um, you know, now that the we don't have to worry about the timeout. The timeout was only for the public issues. All the prosecutors have been, it's not like they went on vacation, you know, 60 days before the midterms. They were working um, to get ready for what's happened in the last week. Phony Willis doesn't have the same timetable. She said she's going to deliver by the end of the year her report to Chief Judge McBurney. I assume it's going to be a recommendation to indict Donald Trump, maybe Lindsey Graham, maybe Giuliani and others, some combination of all three. And McBurney's then going to have to decide because it's a recommendation to him whether whether there is a strong enough case based on the presentation to bring the indictment and to allow her to indict. And if she does, she's she's okay. She doesn't have to worry about the changing of the guard in the White House because she's a state prosecutor in Georgia, and you know that's usually a democratic a Democrat position. Popak, very quickly, um, because we just did that debate, and uh, <laughs> I'm glad we did the debate, but it yeah. took a little longer than I would have uh, anticipated for the uh, debate here. And um, tell us about this Twitter case uh, quickly, if you can, and yeah. and the appeal. G give us a brief a brief rundown yeah. of it. Yeah, this one's relatively straightforward. You've got um, the most interesting thing about it is the new the new um, lawyer. We got yet another lawyer. Um, we should have a graphic for this by Donald Trump, which is Alex Kaczynski, former chief judge of the Ninth Circuit. But put a pin in that because Alex Kaczynski has, how do I put this kindly, some baggage, some sexual abuse baggage um, that made him resign the job as the Ninth Circuit chief judge to avoid a, uh, a an investigation by um, uh, that was initiated by Chief Justice Roberts. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he's now on the brief as the lead appellate lawyer for Donald Trump in his case against Twitter. We talked about this, and you said it earlier in the podcast. Um, he was deplatformed, as we all know, meaning he could no longer tweet by Jack Dorsey, who owned Twitter at the time, and by Twitter. And so he brought a case saying that the terms of service that said that they could ban him were a violation of his First Amendment rights. It was really governmental exercise, even though they're a private entity, and um, he should be able to sue to get back onto the platform. So he's challenging the ability of social media companies to deplatform pursuant to their terms of service, um, which is their contract with their members about what uh, is and is not allowed on the social media platform. Courts that have looked have already looked at this, including the Ninth Circuit sitting in California, have already ruled that social media companies have the right to deplatform, that they are not subject to the First Amendment because they are not governmental entities taking governmental action, and they have the right as a private company to decide who they want to be in business with and who they want as customers. And that's what 
That's what this is all about. We know from prior reporting and from prior cases that there are a couple of U.S. Supreme Court justices that don't agree with this. Um, Clarence Thomas being one of them, who has said in dissents that if he ever gets his hands on social media platforms, he gets his little grubby hands on them, and um, their Im immunity from, from being sued that Congress gave them under Section 230C of the Communications Decency Act, um, he's going to rip away their immunity protection, and he's going to find that since they um, are arbiters and curators of what has become the public square, what used to be the public square where people got up on soapboxes and, and, and exchange of ideas, they are the electronic version of that in his mind, and therefore um, social media companies should not be able to take the Donald Trumps off because of their uh, off the platform because of their viewpoints. So Trump brought the case in Florida. It got transferred to California. He lost at the trial level. He and now after much delay, um, they I guess they asked for a briefing delay. They have finally got around to filing their initial brief with the Ninth Circuit. He's now grabbed Alex Kaczynski. Well, I know everybody's on the edge of their seats about what I said about Alex Kaczynski. And this is all public records. This is not us tearing down a judge. Alex Kaczynski, who's 73 years old, um, it was at one time a very well-considered judge on the Ninth Circuit and its chief judge for a 10-year stretch, also had a problem with porno and pornographic material on his computer and abusing, touching inappropriately, uh, primarily female clerk, law clerks that work with him at the Ninth Circuit. And there's 15 of them in 2017 that came forward to complain about him. This really predates even the hashtag MeToo movement. And um, that led the Ninth Circuit to open up an investigation as to whether he should be punished and impeached. Chief Justice Roberts, who's the ultimate administrator for all federal courts, actually sent the um, investigation over to the Second Circuit Court of Appeals because he he wanted judges that didn't that weren't Kaczynski's colleagues to be doing the investigation and and what did Kaczynski do he retired and by retiring the Second Circuit much to a lot of people's chagrin said up oh, we just lost jurisdiction he's no longer a judge so we don't we no longer have to continue our investigation but listen even six years prior to that he got punished for having pornography on his computer at the office, meaning his chambers in his courtroom. And there he just apologized by saying, oh, he, he confused his personal computer with his with his judge computer, which I'm not sure that's a defense to have pornography at work. But in any event, that's who's now on the brief for Donald Trump. That's who Donald Trump believes is his best chance to advocate on his behalf against Twitter. And the argument that they've made at the Ninth Circuit is sort of ridiculous. I'm going to let you comment on it next. Um, they're saying that um, in order to win, they have to argue that uh, Twitter and social media platforms are the equivalent of governmental bodies that are they are state actors because they've already conceded that if they're not state actors, they're not governmental entities, then there's no First Amendment issue implicated by them. There's no there's no violation here. And in order to get there, they make the leap that because certain politicians you know, Kamala Harris, members of Congress, and certain hearings were held to jump all over Twitter for allowing Trump to uh, pr uh, promote, you know, fake vaccine theories and anti-vaccine theories and anti-COVID theories um, and uh, attacks on Hunter Biden and attacks on Joe Biden having no uh, no tether to reality. That if, he, if the Twitter didn't 
police themselves that Congress would do something about it. And Trump takes the next leap in his briefing saying that is coercion by the state entity, by the government against Twitter. Twitter is capitulating to this enormous state pressure that if they don't do something, the threat is that the um, Democrats are going to yank the, the Section 230 immunity from suit away from them. And that's why they deplatformed Trump. And since there's a link between the governmental pressure and the deplatforming, it's a First Amendment violation. But in the middle of it, they decided in the very beginning to say that that Donald Trump is Galileo because he's being persecuted for his ideas that that will one day be found to be true. All right, Ben, take it. <laughs> Where do I start? Do I start with <laughs> Galileo or do yes. I start with <laughs> Trump wants to repeal Section 230? <laughs> so his whole thing was he wanted to repeal Section yeah. 230. Yeah. So he was the one advocating for that, which he's now claiming that the coercion used by the government such that the government and Twitter are basically one and the same. Twitter is the government, he is arguing, is based on the threat of removing Section 230 immunity from the Communications Decency Act, which is what Donald Trump threatened himself that he wanted to do to them. So I guess I'm being too intelligent there and logically and making, I'll just read you the Galileo part. Most people once believed these to be crackpot ideas. Many people still do, but crackpot ideas some, sometimes turn out to be true. The earth does revolve around the sun and it was Hunter Biden, not Russian disinformation agents who dropped off a laptop full of incriminating evidence at a repair shop in Delaware. Galileo spent his remaining days under house arrest for spreading heretical ideas and thousands of dissidents today are arrested or killed by despotic governments eager to suppress ideas they disapprove of. But this is not the American way. We believe the path to truth is forged by exposing all ideas to opposition, debate, and discussion. Confident in the wisdom of American people, we believe that we believe ideas that survive the gauntlet of criticism will flourish. For example, E equals MC square, revolutionized physics, not because it got thousands of likes on Facebook, but because it survived withering criticism by proclaimed experts. Um, I, I just wonder I, when they sit around and they write stuff like this, do they turn to like the lawyer and they go, oh, high five, like brilliant. Like you got them there. E equals MC square. You're so smart. Trump, Galileo, Hunter Biden's laptop, heretical. This is it's like beyond an insane brief. Look, what is the Ninth Circuit going to do here? They are going. It's 96 pages, this thing. So first off, what? This is Kaczynski, by the way. This is all Kaczynski. Yeah. He's a he's a first. He considers himself a First Amendment scholar. And this is all this Galileo stuff. This is his fingerprints and his hand. My favorite part, by the way, before you go on to the 96 pages is when they and this is the beginning. You could just read. You don't have to read the whole 96 pages. You I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going into the no, 96 not you. pages. No, not you. <laughs> the others. It's the three. The oh, first yeah. three pages are crazy, crazy batshit, crazy stuff to begin with yeah just the, the, the very the very beginning this is the most this is the first line in the brief this is the most important free speech case of our day and then goes on to say like all those great ideas that trump had should be expressed in the public square like the covid vaccine provides weak protection 
which isn't over, which is actually less than the amount of injuries that COVID vaccine. By the way, COVID vaccine was the one I thought he, through his, um, he always takes credit for through the Operation Warp Drive in developing. Now he's crapping all over the vaccine. Now he's crapping on the vaccine. And again, in the second or third page, that the 2020 election was stolen, that Hunter Biden's laptop was dropped off by him and has all sorts of incriminating evidence on it. This is like a crazy wish list you know, paranoid ramblings of Donald Trump in his bathroom at three o'clock in the morning that he gave to Alex Kaczynski that ended up in the brief. The Ninth Circuit's going to shoot this down based on Ninth Circuit precedent quicker than you can say sanctionable conduct. I agree with uh, Judge Middlebrooks, who in sanctioning (laughs) Alina Haba in the last paragraph of the order basically said, like, there's really something wrong with a legal system that allows people like Trump to grift off donors and file these frivolous cases, um, and they need to be held accountable. Um, I hope that the Ninth Circuit doesn't just reject it, but holds them uh, accountable for this just completely frivolous, frivolous uh, lawsuit. Um, I, I won't, I won't delve into it here. But one thing to think about too, though, is now that Elon Musk. Uh, controls Twitter. How is that going to impact the opposition to what Trump is saying? You know, and and what position are they going to take? But I don't want to speculate now. Suffice to say, the lawsuit was originally filed against Twitter and Jack Dorsey, and obviously Dorsey's no longer with uh, Twitter, and Elon Musk is now inherited this lawsuit, and so it's his legal team that would have to file. Uh, a brief in opposition, and we will see if they do that or what they do there. want to thank everybody for watching this edition of Legal AF. Do me one favor, though, please, as you're listening to this before you go, check out patreon.com slash Midas Touch and consider becoming a patron of the Midas Touch Network. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Midas Touch. We are not funded here at the Midas Touch Network by any outside investors at all. So none of the millionaire or billionaire outside investors who fund the both sides media or the pro-fascist media, we have none of that. So we are purely accountable to you and you alone, wherever you are in the world. And I, I often get asked this, hey, Ben, what can I do to help out? No worries if you can't, because I get that there's a lot of things that you subscribe to and just don't worry about it if you can. But if you can subscribe to our Patreon and become a patron, it goes a long way to help build this independent media platform. There's lots of exclusive content at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. There's Q&As I do with my brothers. There's exclusive podcasts, behind the scenes footage. Uh, You could become an honorary producer of the Midas Touch podcast and your name will appear at the end of the podcast I do with my younger brothers. But most importantly, you'll help grow this independent media platform. So please check out patreon.com slash Midas Touch, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Midas Touch. Go check it out now. Also, make sure you subscribe to Legal AF wherever you get your audio podcasts and wherever you listen to this. So whether 
you're an audio listener or a YouTube listener, subscribe on both platforms. Audio listeners go to YouTube. YouTube listeners go to audio. Leave a five-star review on the audio podcast platform. It helps with the algorithm here. It goes a long way to make sure that this program remains in the top of all podcasts out there. So please subscribe. And also check out our merch at Midas Touch Merch at store.midastouch.com. That's store dot midastouch.com for the best unapologetic pro-democracy gear store dot midastouch.com we even got the long sleeve legal af wheels of justice shirt that i know you'll love that store dot midastouch.com i'm ben micellis joined by michael popak on the midweek edition of legal af me and michael popak we'll see you over the weekend until next time shout out to the midas mighty Thank you.